Medical Care Obstetrics Podcast on Diabetic Ketoacidosis in Pregnancy. I'm Stephanie Martin, Medical Director at Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, and I'm here with my partner, Suzanne McMurtry-Baird, Nursing Director at Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics. Today, we're going to be talking about DKA in your pregnant patients. And if you've been listening to us for a while, you may recall that early on a few years ago when we first started the podcast, I did a really short uh, episode on DKA, but I felt like it's been enough time and we've got a foundation now of a, a hopefully a little better understanding about critical illness in pregnancy, vital signs, assessments, et cetera. And I thought it might be a great idea to revisit DKA in pregnancy with that foundation and kind of expand beyond what we started uh, learning in the very first podcast on this. So let's start with the pathophysiology. The bottom line and the most important thing to remember with DKA is that this is developing because there is a relative lack of insulin. It's usually type 1 diabetics. It can theoretically happen in type 2s, but that's quite unusual. It's typically your type 1 diabetics, and these are patients who really are not making functional insulin So they are very, very dependent on external sources of insulin to give them what they need. Now, I tell my patients that insulin's job is to take sugar from the blood and feed it to the tissues. Without insulin, it doesn't matter how much sugar you have in the blood. You can have blood sugars of 300s to 400s, but the tissues are going to think that they are starving because they can't utilize that without insulin. And when your tissues can't utilize glucose or they think that they're starving, they're going to find a way to make fuel for you. So firstly, you see glucose levels in the serum increase because insulin is not taking it to the tissues and the tissues are not using it. And when you have really high blood sugars, you're going to have an osmotic diuresis. Now, sometimes you'll see us do this therapeutically for those of you who have ever worked in a neuro unit where mannitol, which is a type of a sugar Um, They give that in order to suck fluid into the vessels and patients will pee like crazy. But in this situation, this diuresis, this loss of of volume uh, leads to intravascular depletion, but they're not just losing fluids. They're also losing electrolytes. Potassium is the one we focus on uh, the most, but they're also losing things like sodium and phosphorus. Now, at the same time, when they're losing all of this volume, and they have high blood sugars, they've got pretty significant increase in their serum osmolarity. The blood becomes more concentrated. The body's going to continue to try and correct this by pulling fluid out of the cells themselves into the bloodstream. And then they're just going to continue to lose fluid and this cycle continues until you reverse it. Now, I mentioned that the body is going to make glucose to try and feed the tissues. That process is called gluconeogenesis. We store sugar in our bodies, primarily in the liver, in the form of glycogen. This is what allows you to go long periods of time without eating because your body's got a steady supply. It will also break down fat. And that by the byproduct of that fat breakdown is free fatty acids, which then get in turn um, oxidized to ketones. Now there's three ketone bodies that are that are produced. Acetone is the one we really don't pay that much attention to. The other two are acetoacetic acid and beta-hydroxybutyric acid. And these two have an acidic effect. 
these ketones are going to try to be neutralized by bicarbonate and then get excreted into the urine in, in an effort to try and keep the pH normal. But eventually this is going to be overwhelmed, this process. Patients are going to run out of buffers and the acids are going to overwhelm the system. So at the same time, the hydrogen ions that are being uh, produced, the body is going to try and sequester them and hide them from the bloodstream by sucking them into the cells themselves. But there has to be an even exchange. So potassium then gets excreted or released into the bloodstream and then the cycle of losing more potassium into the urine, into the uh, bloodstream, and then ultimately out in the urine, um, continues until your patients become very volume depleted and very hypokalemic. Now, DKA is more likely to occur in your pregnant patients for a variety of reasons, but most of it comes down to insulin resistance. So, pregnant women are resistant to insulin; their body is blocking insulin effect. And this happens with increased glucagon production, prolactin, cortisol, and catecholamines, all of which block insulin from doing its job. The idea behind this is that, you know, glucose is the primary source of fuel for the baby um, and also the brain. But glucose crosses the placenta freely without any energy expended. And if the body says, ah, we don't have enough glucose, it's going to try and make more glucose. But this Pregnancy change is primarily to make sure we have a steady supply of glucose for the fetus. Now, at the same time, remember from our podcast in the past, respiratory alkalosis of pregnancy, this compensated respiratory alkalosis is very, very crucial and a key physiologic change that happens early in the pregnancy. But the result is that the body has lower bicarb levels and a decreased ability to buffer these acids as they're being produced. So they're more likely to, to develop acidosis more quickly than if they were not pregnant. So Suzanne, why don't you talk about what are some of the things that, that predispose or cause uh, DKA to develop in our pregnant patient population? Yeah, um, in pregnancy, as you just said, you know, you're more likely to develop this state. And I think it, before we get into the specific causes, just to remind everybody that, again, this is the most concentrated time of a woman's life that she will receive health care. So it may be that she comes in in DKA and never even knew she had diabetes and that this can present as her you know, initial interaction with the healthcare during pregnancy. And that can be early on too, even, you know, before she's ever even had any kind of glucose monitoring or testing in the pregnancy. But if you think about just general causes, again, it is more likely to occur in a patient that has type 1 diabetes. Uh, but the number one thought would be infection. So looking for any kind of urinary tract infection, you know, upper respiratory infection. Those are going to be your most two common types of infections that we'll see. Um, but any infection at all, as well as adding some uh, antibiotics on top of that, can sometimes uh, cause the insulin to not be utilized as effectively. Um, insulin pump failure, we have to consider that. And I'm a big fan of insulin pumps and and I'm a, especially um, the patient's interaction and knowledge and 
active management of their insulin and blood sugars. Uh, I usually find those patients to be very engaged with their um, plan of care and their management, but it's a pump and it can fail. So just uh, consider that as a possibility. And especially if a patient comes in, in with signs and symptoms of DKA. And then uh, I think previously we saw this uh, third cause a little bit more frequently in the past, but still certainly a possibility. And that's the treatment of any beta-memetic, uh, tocolytic medications. And if they're administered to a patient, certainly uh, their blood sugars can rise pretty rapidly. And then fourthly, antenatal corticosteroids. So administering betamethasone to these patients drive up their blood glucose levels. And you could combine a few of those. You know, let's say a patient's in preterm labor and she has an infection and she's on, uh, you've given her a betamemetic and an antenatal steroid, then you can start to see some of the combinations of those uh, meds. And then the last category, I just kind of combined everything and I put it as patient factors. So I think we think of these a little bit differently these days, especially in our considerations of social determinants of health. So for example, food stability or uh, food ability to get the right types of food for diet. Um, So it's not necessarily that it's a patient choice, but out of necessity, they're having to eat the wrong foods or uh, that would be an example of, of that type of factor. Yeah, and to kind of expand on that, you know, insulin is extremely expensive these days. And so, you know, just maintaining access to necessary medications or adequate doses of necessary medications can be a huge factor in these patients. Same thing with like antibiotics, you know, just because a patient has given a prescription for an antibiotic for an infection doesn't necessarily mean that that patient can afford to get that filled Maybe it's a transportation issue. Uh, so there could be lots of different factors in that. Um, and it could be that um, they're not following the regime that has been recommended as well. Yeah, in, in my experience, a, a couple of things that I see most commonly when patients present with DKA, it's in addition to what you've just um, expressed, you know, the first trimester is a really tough time for uh, type one, uh, diabetic women, because they're unpredictable oral intake, they may give themselves insulin and then throw it up 30 minutes later and, and maybe not knowing how to deal with it and, and having the unpredictability of what they're going to be able to keep down is really, really difficult. But I saw a patient or I can remember a patient. I don't, I don't know how long it's been, but, um, where she'd been a type one diabetic for a very long time, felt very confident in taking care of herself. But her hemoglobin A1C was extremely high in the 13 to 14 range. And she insisted that her endocrinologist was able to manage her uh, diabetes while pregnant. But the patient was really not leaving her pump on consistently and, and didn't like the continuous glucose monitors. So that's a patient where I really worry that she's at very high risk for going into DKA. Um you know, I didn't follow her the whole pregnancy, but I saw her very early in the pregnancy and did my best to try and help her understand what her risks are and the things that she needs to watch out for and um, really encouraging her endocrinologist to be very aggressive 
and with regular close follow-up uh, so that we minimize the likelihood of going into DKA. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, th- I think I would even throw in another category into this cause, and that is at no fault to anyone else or anybody, it is the healthcare system. Um, you know, depending on where a patient lives, depending upon the provider access that she has available. I mean, a lot of times when, you know, you and I may lecture on DKA, a lot of people will also say, hey, I never see that. I don't know why, you you know, you feel like this is a an issue. And I'm like, well, we see it all the time where I live. So I think it really comes down to that access into the types of healthcare uh, systems that they have access to and or the ability to uh, get into uh, may also play a big role in this, not necessarily as a direct cause, but as something that we have to consider when we're seeing DKA. Okay, let's talk about some of the presenting signs and symptoms because everybody, no matter where you live, what type of maternal level of care that you have um, or access, that everybody should be recognizing signs and symptoms, presenting signs and symptoms some vital sign changes that the patient may have, as well as what you want to assess for in these patients. So let's start with presenting. How do they look when they come in? Uh, The first thing I think of is severe nausea and vomiting. Um, And in fact, that may be the reason that they have, you know, they have some kind of GI infection or, or disturbance. And that may start the whole process, but as the glucose rises and as the urine output drops and as the electrolyte imbalances become more severe, nausea and vomiting can be a, a big uh, contributor and also augmenter of DKA. Uh, they'll have frequent uterine contractions, usually complaining about abdominal pain, which may be the first reason why they come into you to rule out labor or preterm labor. Um, any kind of localized signs of infection they may present with as well. Dysuria, if it's a UTI, or back pain, if it's pyelonephritis, fever, or something, uh, a history of some types of those symptoms, cough from an upper respiratory infection. So looking for those localized signs of infection. If it's something peripheral, then you would want to examine that, such as a, you know, some type of tissue or... um, or peripheral infection of the skin or or tissue. You would want to make sure that you assess for that. And then uh, lastly, um, some of these may be relatively benign in in, um, a non-pregnant patient, but be very significant in in a a pregnant patient. So you want to just kind of tie that back into pregnancy. Yeah. And, you know, you and I, when we lecture to interprofessional teams, especially when we've got a combination of OB teams and ICU teams, I think one of the things that surprises the ICU team so much is that pregnant women with DKA, they're just not as sick appearing as the non-pregnant patient. And I think it's the fetus, that little bellwether that is really forcing them to seek care before they would otherwise seek care if they weren't pregnant because they're uncomfortable or the baby's not moving or they're contracting or whatever it may be. But the pregnancy, in my opinion, prompts earlier care. So they're not obtunded. They're not seizing. They're not unconscious. They're, they're saying, I don't feel great. 
I've got, you know, whatever infection symptom or my stomach hurts or I'm vomiting or whatever. And it, it can be missed as just pregnancy complaints unless you're suspicious. And in a minute, we'll talk about how to diagnose it. That's right. And, you know, again, that's that, those real subtle signs too. I mean, you say I'm nauseated or I'm vomiting and everybody says, well, you're pregnant. And uh, those types of things, exactly it. And you and I were just lecturing to an ICU group a couple of weeks ago, and they were really surprised that these patients don't come in just looking, you know, extremely critically ill. And But I also think that that leads to the labor and delivery providers to say, you know, they're not that sick, you know, so let's just keep them here. So we'll get into that in a minute. I have to first talk about vital signs. You know, I always do. So is in the category of vital signs are vital, these patients are going to be tachycardic. And, you know, we're talking about heart rates in the 120s and 130s and sometimes 140s. It really relates depending upon how dehydrated they are. And they are very dehydrated, but that heart rate will climb up and up and up. So recognizing that these patients are going to have tachycardia and then Second most important, if not the most important, tachypnea. Measuring their respiratory rate, these patients will have tachypnea over 20 breaths per minute and usually in the range of like 28, 20, you know, 30, 32, very high. They're reasoning, they're blowing off that acid. They're blowing off carbon dioxide. They're, uh, that is a compensatory mechanism to that metabolic acidosis. So measuring their respiratory rate and noting any respiratory rate higher than 20. But again, it's going to be usually even higher than 24, 26, 28. Blood pressure is uh, varied. So if they're extremely dehydrated, they're going to be hypotensive. um, And their pulse pressure is going to be very narrowed. But if they are in the earlier stages of DKA, you may not see too much of a change in their blood pressure yet. In fact, you may see some of the diastolic pressures be a little bit more higher in a vasoconstrictive compensatory way, Um, but their systolic pressure should not be high. So it really varies depending upon what stage, but obviously hypotension would be a very late sign for these patients, and those patients are even more critically ill. Fever, obviously, if they have an infection, possibly possibly maybe running fever, depending upon the type. And then their oxygen saturations. Again, that's going to vary. It may be that they are low because they're utilizing so much oxygen. And depending upon what stage they are on, if they are, have a metabolic acidosis, they are using a lot of oxygen, but they may not be able to release oxygen as well. And then, or so they could be low, normal, or um, or or no, no change at all. So, as far as their assessment, we're going to need to do a really thorough assessment again, searching for that cause, but then looking at to see how severe these patients are. First off, we're going to do a blood glucose uh, uh, on these patients, and. Patients who are pregnant can go into DKA at a much lower blood glucose level than your non-pregnant adults. So 
levels of even 180 can can lead to DKA in a pregnant patient, which is way different than our critical care uh, colleagues will see. They will see patients having extremely high, like 350 uh, blood glucoses or something like that. But rarely do we see a blood glucose that high. You can, don't get me wrong, and I've seen really high blood glucoses, but they can go in a DKA much quicker at a lower level. As far as your physical assessment, weak pulses. Um, they may be thready if they're extremely hypovolemic. So the, a lot of the physical assessment is going to be based upon that hydration status. And that will also affect your urine output. So these patients need to have a Foley catheter in place where you're doing I and O every hour, looking at that urine output, looking to see the ability of the kidneys to concentrate the urine, making sure that they are not having any kind of a kidney involvement and monitoring your urine output every hour and the ability to concentrate. Why don't you go in now, let's talk about diagnosis um, and how we diagnose, and then we'll get into management. Yeah, so diagnosis is actually the probably the easiest part of all of this, in my opinion. But first, you have to su suspect the possibility. So if you have a type 1 diabetic in particular um, that has any kind of complaints like what we've described above, you need to suspect the possibility of DKA. You start with the blood sugar, as Suzanne said, and uh, but it doesn't end there because you may consider her blood sugar to be, quote, normal, um, 150, 170, 180, 210, whatever. It's not normal, but it's not what we see outside of the pregnant patient population where, you know, they may not even register on the glucometer um, so number one, a blood sugar. Um, the second is very simple. And if you think about DKA, it tells you the, in the name what to do. D is for diabetes, elevated glucose. K is for ketones. And then A is for acidosis. So for the ketones, we want to see ketones in the blood to be part of the diagnosis. But this is real easy at the bedside. Just check their urine. If they don't have ketones in their urine, they don't have ketones in their bloodstream. It's as simple as that. But on the flip side, if they do have ketones in their urine, then you have to draw serum ketones. And then you'll know if it's actually present or not, because you can absolutely have ketones in the urine and not have them in the bloodstream. So if you've got positive serum ketones, then that is part of your diagnosis, the DK. And then we go to the A. So you do not need to check for acidosis before you've done the other two. You do a blood sugar and you check serum ketones. And if those two are negative, then you're normal, then you're done. The patient does not have DKA. But if you've got an elevated blood sugar, serum ketones, then the next step is going to be to assess for acidosis. And there's a variety of ways you can do that. You can start with just a basic metabolic profile, which will include an anion gap. Now, an anion gap basically tells you the difference between your positive and your negative ions. And as the difference between those get bigger and bigger, then your gap gets bigger. And your gap should really be less than 12, okay? Less than or equal to 12. So if the gap exceeds 12, then you've got a problem and we're worried about acidosis in this patient. So that's a pretty straightforward way to look at it. Now, the important thing to understand about pregnancy is that this anion gap, the most common formulas that they use for anion gap, do not account for all of the anions and cations in your system. And the primary one that's not acknowledged is albumin. 
So the low albumin levels can falsely lower your anion gap and you can be falsely reassured. So you need to be suspicious. You can also look for very low bicarb levels um, and a pH of less than 7.3. Now you're thinking to yourself, I don't want to be doing arterial gases on these patients. Well, you don't have to do arterial gases. You can do a venous gas and just recognize that you have to correct the gas. So the pH is going to be about 0.02 to 0.03 lower than arterial blood. Um, So there's a variety of ways that you can get this information, but it's DKA, D for diabetes, K for ketones, and A for acidosis. Now, once you've diagnosed DKA, then we're going to shift to how do we manage these patients? Well, you're going to have to start with basic labs, okay? At minimum, you need to do a CBC. Here we're looking for white count. You must do a differential. Um, And if you forget, you can add it on later. You can call the lab and add it on. Or if you don't recognize what you're dealing with, then you could just don't forget the differential. It's very, very important in these patients. You need to do a complete metabolic profile. You need to do some sort of an assessment of their pH with a venous or arterial blood gas. And you've got to do a urine analysis. Now, there's plenty of other labs that can be done in addition. If you think she's septic, you're going to add a lactate level. Um, You're going to target whatever you think is necessary based on your physical exam. If she needs sputum cultures or a throat swab for a group group A strep or whatever it may be, you're going to do whatever targeted labs are, are indicated by that assessment of your patient. But at minimum, you need to be doing a CBC with differential, a complete metabolic profile, a blood gas, and a urine analysis. Now, the management of DKA, I'm not going to be labor, give this amount of fluid and that amount of potassium. That's boring. And you can look that up. And, and, and ideally, you have a guideline, a checklist, a protocol where all of this is standardized. This is just so perfect for standardization. This is not difficult to manage. But I want you to understand some basic principles. I agree. I think this is the best, you know, protocolized, standardized, you know, is key um, because our patients respond so beautifully if you just follow the recipe. (laughs) So just that is so key. And I think that people hear, you know, DKA, but again, these patients respond beautifully, but you have to give them the right ingredients. And so I, I love the way that you simplify this into four steps. And, um, and, and I'll weigh in in just a minute, but keep going. <laughs> yeah. So there's really just four things you're going to do. Okay. And, and, and really only four things. You don't need to be overwhelmed by this. Number one, you're going to replace fluids. So when your patient presents in DKA, you can assume that they have about 100 cc per kilo fluid deficit. Okay, so since everybody weighs 70 kilos, haha, um, your patient is behind by about seven liters of fluid. That's a massive volume deficit, okay? So they're going to need a lot of fluids, but you're not going to give it all to them in the first two hours that they're, that they're in your hospital. You're going to bolus them some initial fluid, and then you're going to balance out the rest of it over a 24-hour period. And this is where your protocols and your guidelines and your checklists will help you do this. So you don't need to be reinventing the wheel every single time. You also need to replace potassium. You are not going to trust your serum potassium level from your CMP because your potassium 
is falsely elevated on the blood test that you do. Because remember that you've had this exchange of hydrogen and potassium going on. So hydrogen is entering the cells, potassium is entering the bloodstream. As you start fixing the process, that's going to reverse. And potassium is going to be sucked back into the cells and hydrogen is going to be put back into the bloodstream, which means your serum potassium level is going to plummet. By the time your patient presents, she is depleted. Her total body potassium depletion is about 5 to 10 milliequivalents per kilo. So your patient is behind by about 350 to 700 milliequivalents of potassium. That's a massive deficit to replace that's not going to be fixed by putting 40 milliequivalents of potassium into her IV fluids. This is going to take days to replenish, and that's okay. You just need to understand that her deficit is significant and her serum potassium, her initial serum potassium, is not going to correctly reflect her status. You need to understand that that potassium level that you get is going to drop quickly as you start reversing the process. So if she starts out with a potassium level that's already significantly low, beware. It's going to go lower, and some of these patients need to be on continuous ECG monitoring because profoundly low potassium levels can cause significant and potentially life-threatening cardiac dysrhythmias. Then we're going to be supplying insulin. You can't fix any of this problem without an insulin source. So insulin will always be IV, not sub-Q. So think a minute. Why do I not want to give sub-Q insulin? Your patient is profoundly volume depleted. Do you think her body is going to be perfusing her subcutaneous tissues? No, it's going to be focusing on vital organs, not the subcutaneous tissues. So you can be depositing large amounts of insulin, but that doesn't mean it's going to be being absorbed. So if your patient is on an insulin pump, the pump is discontinued and you switch to a continuous infusion of IV insulin that can then be titrated um, exactly to what you need. Of course, this requires, and this is a nursing issue, this requires at least two IVs to be able to replace the electrolytes, and then you're going to have a separate IV for your insulin to be able to run your regular insulin from the pump into the, straight into the single line and in their own separate line. So uh, make sure, again, you have the two IV lines uh, for this patient because you're going to be bolusing as well. Yeah, really important point because you can't, this is not a time to be stingy with IV access. She's going to need a lot. Right. And, and make sure that, that, you know, they're an 18 gauge because they're going to need to have, you know, a, a large bore IV for that much volume. Um, so you don't want to start a 20, for instance, on this patient. So right. why don't I get into the, the fetal issues uh, for this patient, you know, before Did you, you do that, I want to make one other I want to make one other point because it's very tempting as you give the insulin, her glucose is going to come down pretty quickly. And remember, they're not all they're not in the eight or nine hundreds. So very quickly they're going to be approaching a hundred or even lower. And our inclination is going to be awesome. We fixed the problem. Stop the insulin. It's dangerous. No. We are not stopping insulin until we have corrected the acidosis and the ketosis. We must do those things. So you will always keep the insulin going, 
but you will need to add glucose. So the fourth point is to supply glucose. You're going to need to do that quickly. So you're going to replace fluids, replace the potassium, supply insulin, and then supply glucose. And once you've cleared the ketosis and the acidosis, then you can transition to a subcutaneous regimen from the IV regimen. But don't be in a rush. It'll happen fairly quickly over the courses of hours or a day at most for most of our patients. Not all, but for most patients, they're going to reverse this process pretty quickly. Um, And then you can begin the process of transitioning to a sub-Q regimen. But don't be in a rush. There's no hurry here. So let's talk about how all this impacts the baby now. Yeah, thanks. Um, I just one thing I, I keep forgetting things too. Um, for the the glucose again for our ICU um, clinicians that are listening, you know, usually your protocol will um, start to consider maybe sending them off the ICU or uh, considering them very stable when their blood glucose gets to about one eighty. Again, making sure that they're, they're out of ketosis is, is key because, again, our patients can still be in DKA at that level. And I know that's unusual for your patient population, but they can still be in DKA for a pregnant patient. So one of the um, key things that we also see in our assessment is how the fetus tolerates, you know, metabolic acidosis, essentially, which is caused by the DKA. And This is going to really be affected by several things. First off, we've got to consider that this patient has decreased cardiac output. Uh, Cardiac output is decreased because of the hypovolemia. Um, That is going to cause the decrease in placental perfusion. That'll initially cause a fetal hypoxemia and then eventually fetal hypoxia and lactic acidosis in the fetus. Um, So outcomes in the fetus can be very poor if not, if DK is not recognized and managed aggressively in these patients. So recognizing this and the, the initial uh, reaction, and I think response in uh, for obstetric providers is to, you know, the first thing that we feel comfortable with, and that's to put them on the fetal monitor. And what you're going to see is a fetus that is compromised. Um, not only because it has metabolic acidosis, but it is, you know, it is having a perfusion issue from the placenta due to the maternal condition. So you're going to see things like fetal tachycardia, and and that can be extremely high, again, as related to how decreased the cardiac output is, how hypovolemic the patient is. If she's contracting, which usually these patients are, uh, she can be having late decelerations, and also very either minimal to or absent baseline variability. So again, showing that metabolic acidosis um, in the mom equals fetal metabolic acidosis. So we shouldn't forget that. I mean, mom has metabolic acidosis, the fetus has metabolic acidosis. And again, depending upon how volume depleted depends upon how decreased her cardiac output is as well. So that's going to further augment the fetal um, outcomes. So monitoring is important. Um, This patient should be in an ICU setting, especially with these. um, This is a critical illness. Metabolic acidosis is is a critical illness. And I think that um, sometimes, again, in OB, because the patient can kind of look pretty good sometimes, 
Now, certainly they can come in abundant and, and extremely compromised, but because they can have that appearance of being relatively stable, oftentimes they'll be managed in a labor and delivery setting, but these patients are critically ill. So um, in other words, DKA is not managed outside of an intensive care unit in any other unit of the hospital. So these patients are critically ill. And so MFM uh, physician needs to be involved with the care of these patients. They can collaborate with the intensivist in the ICU, but MFM involvement is critical. The family and the patient, um, and patient when applicable, and sometimes, again, she can come in unconscious, but most of the time, again, these patients are sitting up talking to you, so they need to be involved in some of the decision-making processes, and one of those is about fetal monitoring. So fetal monitoring is um, going to be done usually if the fetus is viable, um, but know that these changes are going to be present. Now, again, this is a conversation that the physician has with the patient and family, and that is all determined in their plan of care. So just know you're going to have these changes and how are you going to respond to them? Who is going to respond to them? How is this going to be communicated? What is the plan of care? All of that's so key and essential and needs to be documented in the medical record. And I think, you know, going into detail about what's right or wrong is really beyond the scope of this podcast. But I want to point out that and highlight kind of what you're saying, Suzanne, that if a patient is in DKA and she's pregnant and you put the baby on the monitor, it is going to be very abnormal because the baby is acidotic, period, end of sentence. So acknowledging that, because when you put them on the monitor, you're going to be tempted to go do major abdominal surgery on the patient who is critically ill. So I think it's important that the team understand what to expect from the fetal monitoring and everybody involved, um, especially the patient and her family, um, understand what the goals of treatment are, how we're going to monitor. And really the important thing to recognize is that the vast majority of patients will respond quickly. Um, the fetal status will improve. Um, but you need to understand what the risks and benefits are of intervening versus not intervening, monitoring versus non-monitoring. And there's really no right or wrong answer for all these patients, but that conversation needs to be had. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's that shared decision-making process. Because um, the fetal condition can take several hours to uh, respond to the maternal resuscitation. So patient needs volume. Uh, the perfusion to the placenta needs to Im be improved. You do that by Im improving your cardiac output in your mother. So positioning the patient, making sure they're on their left or right side. Uh, you can elevate their extremities too initially um, to get some of that return to the right side of the heart. But bottom line is following those four steps and, and getting that volume replaced and getting the electrolytes corrected and getting the insulin in and correcting the blood glucose and then adding some glucose to, to the situation to help improve the fetal status. And that's why we want our checklist. That's why we want that standardized protocol because fetal condition relies on the maternal correction of the DKA. And then one last thing, um, if the patient's preterm, we know that steroids are going to worsen the hyperglycemia, but that's not a reason not to give them for fetal lung maturity. 
doesn't mean that this patient won't deliver preterm. So go ahead and give them. And what do we do? We anticipate that the glucose is going to go up so we can adjust our insulin levels and our resuscitation accordingly. Um, the patient, again, is going to more likely than not be contracting frequently. Uh, and I know that the, the, the first thing someone's going to want to do is give tocolysis. And that is not necessary either. If you just correct the perfusion to the uterus, usually the contractions will go away. Um, if you had to give a tocolysis, um, I would think mag sulfate would be your choice. Would, is that what you would recommend, uh, Stephanie? Yeah, for the non-OB people, if we're going to try and stop contractions, we're typically looking at magnesium sulfate, calcium channel blockers such as nifedipine, beta agonists such as terbutaline, or non-steroidals such as um, indomethacin. And all of these have potential negative effects on a patient with diabetic ketoacidosis. She could have renal compromise from decreased perfusion. She could have acute kidney injury. We don't want to give um, something that could potentially impact her renal function like endomethacin. Um, nifedipine is going to lower her blood pressure. She's already volume depleted. You could precipitate hypotension. Beta agonists, they don't really work that well, but it's also going to cause tachycardia and you're going to have difficulty using your vital signs to assess how your patient is doing. Plus, it's going to raise your blood sugars. And then lastly, we have magnesium, which will you know make the patient more symptomatic but it's not necessarily going to create the other physiologic changes that are going to negative, potentially compound the complications that the patient's already experiencing. But like Suzanne's saying, I, I don't think tocolysis is a priority for these patients. Um, reversing the DKA will resolve the overwhelming majority of the issues. Uh, but if you think tocolysis absolutely cannot be avoided, then my recommendation and choice would be magnesium over the others for the reasons that I've said. Yeah, I think that's what I've seen mostly, and um, you know, for and for the reasons you said, the side effects of the other medications are just not as, you know, they're stronger in the, this patient population. So, so I want to thank everybody for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on our podcast. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsnob.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, which is Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, or on Twitter, or formerly known as Twitter, now X, at OB Critical Care, and on Instagram at Critical Care OB. Email us or send a direct message for suggestions on future podcasts. We look forward to talking to you soon. Bye. This podcast was produced by Austin Baird. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please email me at podcastnashville at gmail. That is podcastnashville at gmail.com.